Welcome back to Pure Curiosity. I'm Iris McAlpin, and today I have a very overdue but still wonderful podcast for you with guest Joey Selden. She is a coach who specializes in leadership training and emotional intelligence, and she's also the author of the book Emotions, an Owner's Manual. And she and I met in an event in San Francisco, and I was just immediately struck by how warm and friendly she was. And we started talking about trauma, and she was remarkably knowledgeable about it, much more than anyone I had casually met at a cocktail party. And I found out that she's an author and a coach, so I invited her to be on, and I'm very glad that I did, because we get into a sort of holistic conversation about trauma, and a lot of people hear that word, it has kind of a stigma around it. And the truth is, you know, you don't have to go through some crazy life threatening event to have some experience with trauma. And I heard recently from Dr. Eric Gentry that while it is statistically true that those of us living in developed nations are the safest human beings that have ever lived on the planet, we also have the highest levels of vicarious trauma than any humans that have ever lived. And we have the news and media to thank for that. And we have instant exposure to terrible events happening around the world. And while many of these things are not new, and in some cases are actually less prevalent than they were before, we're getting bombarded with these messages and with these images now. And not surprisingly, it has an effect on our mental health. So over the next hour, Joey shares tools and insights from her coaching practice that I believe are relevant for anyone with emotions, so that probably includes you, and this one has some real gems in it, so I hope you'll take the time to listen all the way through. Enjoy! There's a lot of pressure, I feel like people feel this sort of unnecessary pressure to be perfect. And I felt it in spades for years, so I understand it completely, but just realized it's so much more fun and so much easier. It takes so much less energy to just show your mess. And if it's not perfect, it's not perfect. And who cares? (laughs) And just own up to it if you need to, but you know. Well, it also makes you relatable, I think. It's something I'm still grapple with. Yeah. How open I'm mean, open one-to-one yeah well yeah and I think as a coach it's it's a good question to ask you know how transparent should I be what do they need to know and what what should I keep it, you know there are, I was a therapist first uh, I was an actor then I was a therapist yeah I saw that so as a therapist you know you have to really really honor boundaries and the power you're you have to be aware of the power dynamic yeah as a coach there's still a power dynamic but it's different it's a it's much more on equal terms so it's one thing I like about coaching it's uh but there's still that you know okay I'll share this but I won't right you know not everything yeah because I'm not their buddy I'm not their pal uh I I'm someone to help them actually move forward in life and there's a difference absolutely yeah so so you do a couple different types of work it sounds like so you do executive coaching Mm -hmm. and um Tell me about the the somatic work that you do. I was, well, I have a master's in somatic counseling psychology, and I was a somatic therapist for a while before I became a coach. But it wasn't my all long-term goal because my goal was really to learn and understand about emotions. Uh, but I learned so much about the body, and it just made sense. I actually, when I enrolled in grad school, I did not enroll in the somatic program. Hmm. So I discovered it once I was there, and after uh, six months, I went, I have to change my major, because <laughs> you know? this is, it makes so much sense. And so now I bring what I learned through that, because we're humans, whether, whether somebody was an executive or they're just starting out in their career, we're all human beings. And so much of the problems in business is that we don't bring our humanity into it. Mm-hmm. So the somatic work is really just simply recognizing that we are our our whole being we are embodied beings so everything we experience we experience on a body level you know we certainly experience in our cognitive understanding in our mind our emotions but also in the cells of our body so tensions and 
patterns and habits and neurological pathways that establish in our brain. These are all things that are a response to our reality in our life or how we're living. And they're all plastic. as They're all flexible. So as we grow and learn, we can change these habits. And a lot of the beautiful thing about working with the body is you don't have to go back and remember exactly yes. what happened. You don't have to go back because we can cognitively go over and over and over an issue, totally understand it, understand the other people involved, and things don't really change because they haven't changed on a biological level. Hmm. It's so perfect that we're talking about this right now because uh, I've actually been taking a, a program to become a certified trauma professional mm. and... It's so funny because I've read so much about trauma over the years, but mm -hmm. something about this program, it's just really, maybe it's just the timing or who knows, but it's really been hitting home. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I am tensing my body all the time. And so literally like maybe 200 times a day, uh -huh. I'm having to catch myself and just release yeah, and catch myself and release. Yeah. And that process has actually changed my life. It sounds so simple, but... I feel like a different person. Wow. That's fantastic. And so maybe you can talk to us a little <laughs> bit about, because some of the somatic work, I think we've been sort of trained to think that if we're going to heal, we have to go in there and it's going to be so hard and it's going to be so complicated. We have to remember all this stuff. And my experience with somatic work is it it doesn't have to be hard. Right. So how does that work? I, I, that's one of the things I love about the somatic work because it's much faster mm -hmm. and you can get to things that are in the subconscious and unconscious because sometimes things happen to us when we're too young yeah. to really, we can't, we can't make sense of it. It's pre-verbal even. It's in the womb even sometimes. And these things start setting up things in the body because the body's number one priority is survival. And so we do things to survive. And when you work with the body and something like it is so simple mm -hmm. and yet it is so profound when you learn to relax your body or recognize chronic tensions or patterns that you have. And when you shift that, change happens in a nanosecond. You know, that's one thing I learned over time. I mean, I've done a lot of work <laughs> way before yeah. I even came into the somatic piece. But I was a dancer, so I really loved, you know, I was really connected more to my body than uh, verbally. I was, hmm. I was, I thought I was shy, but actually I found out later on I was kind of trained to be shy, <laughs> trained to be an introvert. And when my nature is actually I'm an extrovert. Uh, but I, but it's this thing of, of shifting something on a, on a body level that opens up space hmm. and changes the pattern and then it directly affects your thinking. And your thinking can affect your body as well. It, it's they work together yeah it's interesting so you went from being a shy dancer to becoming I saw you do or did a lot of improv yes yes uh, well I I was an actor I wanted to be an actor and uh, so I moved to Hollywood when I was nice. 20 <laughs> and uh, I did act but I got into an improvisational theater company and, and that changed my life because I was a perfectionist and I was very uptight and, and, and you know insecure, but learning how to improvise, to think on my feet, to go with the, the principle of improvisation is yes and. Yeah. So that uh, you don't resist something. And in trauma, that's one of the things that goes on is a resistance. A resistance to the felt sensations, a resistance to the emotion or the fear of what you think is gonna be there. And I, when, I, when I worked as a therapist, uh, everybody had trauma. But when I work as a coach, everybody has trauma. Mm. You know, So it doesn't matter how successful someone is. I work mostly with women. It doesn't matter whether they're VP in a huge corporation. They had some kind of trauma. You know, It may not be sexual trauma. It may not be physical trauma. But there's emotional trauma. Um, and so that resistance to go there and what I have found over time is that everybody once they will actually surrender to and face and go into the emotion that they're most afraid of they inevitably say 
Well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't know what I was so afraid of because now they feel freer. They have freed up that energy that they've been holding in their in their body. Yeah. So let's talk about trauma for a second because I think this is something I've observed a lot over time. People think of it as like I had a near death experience or somebody molested me or I was Mm -hmm. beaten as a child or, you know, Mm -hmm. these very extreme versions of trauma, which maybe are more common than we once thought. But, um, you know, you said almost everyone's dealing with trauma. And I think some people resist using that term Mm -hmm. because there's, you know, you're slapping a label on something. Labels are scary. So how do you define trauma more loosely? I would define, tra- I've never been, nobody's asked me that question, so I'm, <laughs> I'm excited here to, to define this. To me, trauma is anything that gives you the message that somehow who you are innately is not okay. Mm. That really rings true, yeah. So we can have little things, like for myself growing up, I was always told no. I wanted to try something or do something. No, no, no. And I got that this used to and then going out in the world, uh, you know, I was expecting no. So it was, I kind of had a fight in me enough to get out, (laughs) (laughs) to get out of there and at 18 and never go, I never lived at home again after 18, but it was hard. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of internal insecurity uh, and there are a lot, a lot of opportunities that I missed because I didn't, I, I just thought I w- wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Now, one thing you mentioned sort of in passing, but I've heard quite a few people talk about in utero trauma mm-hmm. before. And it's something I know very little about, but mm-hmm. it piques my interest. So obviously, you know, there is some amount of consciousness happening in there, especially later, right. later on in pregnancy. Um, do we have a sense of what's actually happening for an infant in utero? I think so. I, one of the most su- surprising courses, I, I had to take child development hmm. uh, as part of my program, and we talked about that, you know, pre-birth, and hmm. went through, you know, the whole thing from conception and the development and one of the things that I learned is that the heart and the brain, the cells that make up the heart and the brain initially are attached. Hmm. And at some point they separate out. How one cool becomes is that? the brain and the other <laughs> becomes the heart, isn't it? Yeah, that's beautiful. And the 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 chemicals that are that are going on in the mother, you know, you're inside a human being who is having emotional experiences, who has you know, having the, her own experiences. And so all, all kinds of things can be transmitted uh, through that process of development. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This is maybe a horrible parallel to draw, but it's funny because as I've learned how to self-regulate and relax my body when I'm feeling that tension, Especially, I notice when I'm meditating, I have this little dog who is like attached to me at a level that makes no sense. <laughs> and but when I'm calm, when I'm self-regulated, when I'm meditating, she will just sit there so calmly, yeah. which is not the norm. Uh huh. And I feel like we're unconsciously, like all beings, are sort right. of unconsciously transmitting these signals all the time that we pick up on, whether that we're aware of it or not. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. This space between you and I is not empty space. Hmm. Uh, it, it, there's, there's stuff going on. I mean, there are people who actually study heart math, uh, uh, studies the heart. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating uh, where they've taken cells from the same person and separated the cells, kept them alive, separated them sometimes miles and miles and miles apart. And they stimulate one cell and the other cell responds. Ooh, that's like that. Um, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. <laughs> that uh, I forget the the name of the theory that that is, but that makes yeah, a lot it, of sense. Yeah, it is. It's we're because it, ultimately everything is connected. We're all connected, and we have this illusion that we're all separate, and the things are separate. And unfortunately, right now in the in the country here, there's a lot of separation. 
although I do think it is a, a shakeup that's necessary for our evolution as a species. And it's waking us up to a kind of way of viewing things and that's so linear and, and so self-contained that we yeah. have to recognize that we're, we're all part of the same species. I really hope you're right. <laughs> I really do. And I, I have similar hopes. And it seems like, um, if you're familiar with that term, extinction burst, where it's like no. just as an old pattern is about to die off, it gets that much like louder. It is, yes. So yes. I feel like that's kind of what's happening collectively right now. It, in a way it is. I, I studied metaphysics for a long time. And um, the ego, we have an ego, but we if you your ego's job is actually to bring you information but what we do is we give the ego power <laughs> we turn over our our ability to be in charge of our life and give it to our ego and the ego is not that smart <laughs> it's not you know it's if you'll notice that if you have issues it's the same thing over and over again if you have sort of internal negative thoughts or you know self-deprecating thoughts it's the same it's the same message over and over again because that's as far as the negative ego can go mm. so part of my work and my process was to learn how to really uh, first confront the negative ego but also then to recognize if if you try to get rid of it it's going to get stronger because it's really a part of you yeah so it's how to you it's about integration ultimately and is that what your book so you have a book called Emotions, the owner's manual, Emotions right? and owner's manual. And owner's yes. Manual. I love that. Um, and so talk to us a little bit about that. It, it, come, it came out of my work. Initially, I, I was an actor for a long time. And uh, I found that in my struggles to be successful in my career, the acting part was always great. But, you know, getting work and fulfilling a career was a struggle. And so at some point, I had this moment of why am I so miserable mm. and my focus became I want to know what the truth is about life whatever it is if it means everything I've been taught is a lie so be it I'm willing I'm open you know like show me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what is the truth and in my journey I discovered that there is no ultimate truth I mean how do we know yeah. what's after death or what's beyond the stars or anything so how do we know we don't but what we do know is the moment-to-moment -moment truth that's told to us by our feelings and I have delved into the world of emotions for a long time and discovered that they are actually this is my definition they are a biological therefore physiological information system hmm. the purpose of which is to bring you information about your relationship to everything hmm. your relationship to people to circumstances to world events externally and then internally your relationship with yourself so your beliefs your memories your innate being of who you are so these the, the book is about the four cornerstone emotions that are the foundation out of which all other feelings come that's my theory so that it's it's about uh, sadness fear anger and joy hmm. and out of these come all other feelings and it goes into a lot of depth about what each of these what is this information because yes. we universally you know when you look at a picture they've done studies with with tribes where um, they don't speak English, they're not, they, they're actually very isolated, but when you show up a picture of an angry person, they know exactly what that is. You show them a picture of a jealous person, they're not so sure, because jealousy is not a core emotion. Mm, yeah. It's a feeling that's a combination of core, one or more core emotions and your thoughts and your beliefs and attitudes. So is there a cultural context for jealousy that, that certain cultures don't really experience as much? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think uh, every culture has sort of its tendencies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was shocking to me to discover that the American culture is actually a war culture. Hmm. It's a combative culture. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. Based on I, what we're seeing right now, that makes a lot of sense. And it's been that way from, from day one, really. Yeah. how the country was founded was 
so it's hierarchical and um, we'll do a lot I can say about that. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you know, before we begin, we talked a little bit about anger mm -hmm. and you wrote a blog post about basically how to show your anger without getting arrested. And that piqued my interest, one, because it's funny, but also, um, you know, anger is something that most of us have been taught to sweep under the rug mm -hmm. most of our lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. And most people don't have a really good tool set for how to express anger in a healthy way. Right. And so I would love to hear you talk about that. Okay. Because I think it's, we all have it. And when it's being suppressed, it tends to come out sideways in some pretty weird ways. Yes. And part of that is the general attitude about emotions. They're dismissed as either being weakness, a weakness, or negative. You know, joy and happiness are positive. Everything else is pretty much labeled a negative emotion. And even very enlightened people will still label them. It drives me crazy. <laughs> because if these are innate to us. Yeah. It, we, when we were in the cave days, we had fear and anger, fight or flight. And we had something that drew us together, passion, to bring us together. Uh, uh, and then we had sadness when we had loss. But we have this very core uh, fight or flight. And in our modern times, we have evolved, but our emotions are lagging and our attitude about emotions are really lagging. So anger... If your life is not directly threatened and you don't have to use anger as a way to fight your, your for survival, anger's core message is no. Mm. I don't like this. I don't want this. It is a boundary setter. And we need boundaries. If you're being abused by someone, you need something that says, hey, stop. Yeah. You can't treat me that way. So that to me is an extremely positive use of anger and so when we have these little you know like well these little sparks of anger that come up because we're so used to suppressing them we stuff them and when you stuff them then there's all this energy because anger has got a lot of energy and it's also an outward moving energy we talked about you know the space in between that there's something we're putting out something you can somebody can walk in the room and you go, ooh, you can yeah. feel their anger because it's not just in them, it's coming out as a vibration, as a, a wave of energy. And so anger is an outward moving energy. And because it's really powerful, uh, what what I say is that we have clean anger and we have defensive anger. So clean anger is when somebody says something that goes against your values. It's basically a, a protector of your autonomy, your sense of self, who you are. And so that something happens and you feel that spark of anger come up. You know, we either get snarky, <laughs> you know, oh yeah, right, that's saying, hi, how are you? Mm -hmm. A little covert hostility or what we call <laughs> passive aggressive, right? Yeah. Uh, or people will stuff it and stuff it until they explode or they get ulcers or they get back problems or some kind of illness. And so the key is to learn how to stay present with the energy that is flowing through your body. I feel the heat. I, that's how I know it. That's my first sign. Mm. Ooh, I start to feel hot. And it fits. Well, like I'm mad as hell. I'm <laughs> boiling mad. Yeah. You know, these phrases that we have, or they came from somewhere, right? So anger is really, it's like learning how to stay present with that energy and be appropriate in your communication. Because if you dump on somebody or you yell at somebody and you don't have permission to do that, you don't have agreement to do that, their defenses are gonna come up and nothing's gonna happen. You know, and so what people all do is, and the, and the, like people who think that anger makes them powerful, really what they're often doing is covering up some other emotion like shame uh, uh, sadness because they think it makes them weak or fear and it's strong I feel stronger when I'm angry so I'll be angry I, I took an incredible course and I'm sorry I can't remember the guy's name right now on shame he's in Berkeley he's in the Bay Area people I could, know oh gosh I know who you're people could contact story. me if uh, uh, yeah uh, if they want to know about this it was brilliant I took his course and it was liberating for me. And it, he's talked about uh, 
terrorism and the Middle East and how, uh, you know, it's all anger. It's all, vi all this violence is really because these men live in a culture where men are in charge, they are taught that men are superior, but they have no power because they're run by dictators or kings or you know there's only the elite at the top have any power and so they have no power so they have an inherent shame within them and the anger is there to come is like an antidote to that shame that's makes so much sense um, one thing that you mentioned you know and this was something I experienced myself for a long time I actually <laughs> For a long time, didn't think the anger was real because I always felt like, you know, it was sadness masquerading as anger or uh -huh. shame masquerading as anger. But sometimes I've learned that that's not true. Anger is a real thing, but it can be really difficult at times to figure out what's what, especially if it's functioning as a mask. So yes. how do you help people sort of peel that back and discern what's what in those kinds of situations? It, it is tricky until you start to get used to being able to discern with own, in your own being. I can tell immediately now when my anger is clean and when my anger is defensive, mm. which is often also a cover-up for a sense of powerlessness. And that's another issue in terrorism. Yeah. But it's, I think it's a big issue, and I think it happens a lot with, with women in the workplace where you're, you, know, you don't have power in our culture. We... We have a myth that women are liberated here, and as we are finding out, <clears throat> we're not so liberated in the culture. It has to do, it starts with the body. So some of the methods that I use, the somatic work, is helping people to learn how to tune into their own body and then become a witness to what it is they're experiencing inside. So I'm, I'm aware, I'm noticing, I'll have people say, Instead of saying, I feel tense, they say, I have them say, I'm aware of something in my body that feels tense. Hmm. I'm aware of something in my chest that feels tight. So it's a, it's a coming down to a kind of still place and an observer of your own experience so that you're not stuck in one point of view. And then you can actually have dialogue with parts of your body uh, memories will come up. Different people have different things. I had a, a client once who lyrics to songs were always coming up mm. as we explored in, in her body. And these lyrics had meaning to her. So she was able then to kind of unpack her own, the complexity of her own emotional experience. Because I can't do that for you. Right. I can only hold the space for it and provide the guidance because your innate wisdom is within you. Everybody has... That's why emotional intelligence, everybody has it. It's just been, you know, it's um, done out of us. Well, that yeah. wasn't, right, wasn't right word. We, we've lost it because of all the conditioning and the culture and family. Yeah, that makes me think of, you know, you see all the time, like on TV and other things, these kids will just say things that are so wise. Uh -huh. And it's like we're born with this intuitive knowing about, other people about ourselves and it just yes. sort of gets conditioned out of us over time it does it does now you mentioned clean and defensive anger yeah. can you say a little bit more about what those are so clean anger is is the what I, and there are people who say oh, there is no such thing as pure anger it's always a cover-up of something else yeah. i do not agree with that yeah. at all I don't like it. the clean anger is that boundary setter that says no you know, what you're saying or doing to me is not acceptable to me. And I can feel grounded. I might have that charge. You know, I might feel that spark and I might feel tension in my body, but I can take a breath and I can stay grounded and calm and speak with a calm voice and then discern, can I say something to this person? And if I can, how do I say it in a way that's respectful of them? Or is it something that I have to process on my own because it's just not appropriate? Defensive anger has an, an edge to it. You know, from my own internal experience, there's an edge and I'm not making sense. <laughs> I'm kind of on a rant. Yeah. Uh, and I can feel it um, 
that I can feel that it's like uh, my cells are all jumbled up. Whereas with clean anger, I feel cohesive inside. Hmm. So I think that on a, on a tactile sensation is a great place to start with really recognizing your anger. Like I used to get so pissed off <laughs> at the computer when something technically went wrong because I don't consider myself a technical person. And so I would just get like rah, 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 <laughs> and cursing and all upset because I felt powerless. And once I really recognized I am doing this at a machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, humor is very helpful <laughs> and I could laugh at it. Then I could catch myself going, oh, I recognize that that response in my own body. I know that that's the defensive anger. Take a breath. And what I found is that I actually got way better at dealing with technical stuff. And I'm also very good at dialing the phone. And I, I pay for extra technical support, right? So I get yeah. what I need. Yeah. I fulfill that need. So what I'm hearing you say is when you sort of talk yourself off the ledge almost and sort of get back into your body, mm -hmm. you actually have access to more options and ways of dealing with things. Yes. And that's really a huge part of all emotional intelligence, but particularly with anger, because your focus gets very narrow. Fear is contracting. Fear is inward moving energy and it contracts. So you can get stuck there. And with anger, it gets very narrow. And when you can take a breath, even if you're still angry, it, it opens up. It's like it broadens your range of view. And then ideas, solutions other things start to come to you because the flow of energy is happening that makes so much sense and it seems like we live in this culture of people that live from the neck up yes and so access to that is not something that most people have and so i'm sure you have a lot of executives people who come into you when you start talking about their body awareness they're probably like what are you talking about it, it's, I, I, I asked some, I send an extensive questionnaire before I start to work with someone so I can kind of get some sense of them first. And in the initial session, uh, I actually do, uh, um, I do a three hour VIP at the beginning and an hour and a half of it is emotion education. It's going over the foundation of, of my system, which actually has seven emotions. There's four in the book. Uh, and it goes through these emotions and start, so I just put it out intellectually. And then as we begin to work, I, depending on who the person is, I bring it in. But you know, everybody is, I haven't had anybody, some people it is harder. And some people are engineers, right. <laughs> like I, civil engineers and software engineers. It takes some doing to kind of get them more to access the, the body. But when they do, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a revelation, and yeah. they get it. Yeah. And then things start to shift. Yeah, it was definitely, I was the type of person that really resisted it, and I think it was because when you live in this very cerebral world, mm -hmm. you have a lot more control. You can make sense of things. You can understand things. You can pick things apart. When it's just in the realm of feeling, you don't really get to dictate what your body feels. No, you don't. <laughs> and I didn't like that at all. That was not what I was like excited about. And um, but as I've learned to do it, it's been wonderful and greatly changed my life. Yes, and I, it's interesting what you said about control. You might think you have control, but ultimately. <laughs> You don't really have of course. total control. The illusion was much easier to maintain. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, for But sure. with the body, I, I say you can't control it, <clears throat> but you can be in dominion. Mm. You can be in dominion of what goes on. Because emotions are not meant to be run in the show. They're not supposed to be in charge. They are bringing you information. They're like servants. Mm. And I, my analogy is that you are the queen of your domain, or king. So you are the royalty of your domain, and your emotions and your feelings and your body sensations are all your subjects. And you can stay in your ivory tower, your head, and ignore them, 
And after a while, there's just chaos. <laughs> yeah, that was totally where I was coming from. <laughs> or you can try to control them and say, you have to go here and you have to do this and I won't feel that and I'm going to feel this, but not that. And then they rebel and then they cause damage when it can be through back pain or ulcers or dysfunctional relationships, any number of things. So, but when you're in domain and you hold up, hold court and you say, come, let me hear what you're saying. And then I, as the being, as it, it say, this is the choice that I make. Because they're ultimately there to bring you information so you can make choices that are ultimately beneficial for, number one, your survival, and two, your well-being. Hmm. That's a really wonderful analogy. And I've heard you say a couple of times now that, you know, these things when neglected can turn into physical ailments. Mm -hmm. So that's something that is becoming more and more sort of commonly held, but I think there's still some people who probably don't know a lot about that. So what is the relationship between physical health and emotional health? Uh, one of the very first ones is muscle tension. And muscle tension can throw things out of alignment. It can restrict the blood flow to your organs. Uh, so you can have issues. I'm not saying every single ailment is all emotion based because we have environmental influences and hereditary and things like that. But a lot of things uh, are because of literally muscle tension and habitual muscle tension. And the other is it affects your immune system. When, when you get angry, for example, it's not just uh, uh, there's cortisols and adrenaline, there's like hundreds of uh, hormones that we have in our body that are there to bring signals. Really, they're trying to help you survive. And then one of the things with trauma is that if you don't get to follow through, if you have a reaction and it gets stunted, if you get stopped or you stop yourself, you know, you're with an alcoholic parent, and if you speak up, you're going to get whacked, you're going to keep your mouth shut, right? And so you're holding that in. And so there's, there's this secretion of these hormones, but then where do they go? Where does that energy, and this is, gets where a little more metaphysical, so we have this life force energy in our body, and that energy gets trapped until you actually hear what the message is and then take some kind of appropriate action. And when it's away from your past, sometimes it's a, just a matter of recognizing it and then feeling it. And I have exercises in the book that help you go through stuff from the past so that you can release them in healthy ways. Hmm. What I'm hearing is sort of at the core of all of this is, you know, through evolution or, you know, various processes, we are these beings that are designed to survive. Mm -hmm. And what can be at odds with us actually thriving and living fulfilling lives is this intense survival instinct. And so it sounds like your work and your book sort of help us bridge that gap. Yes, that's very much what I'm, I'm about is the thriving part. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, and so that we evolve uh, spiritually uh, on the planet because the potential is just, it is paradise, if you want to call it that. It's funny, I've never used that term before, but it's its this joyous. I mean, joy is, uh, when I when I was writing the book, because I, I had spent so much time on sadness and fear and anger, and yeah. I had taught a lot of classes and gotten a lot of input and done a lot of study, and, and then I thought, well, joy, that'll be easy, and I start writing the joy segment of it. And I just went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> and I ended up writing, I have actually a second book that's kind of all about uh, the blocks to joy mm -hmm. and how we get blocked in our joy and how we get trained out of actually experiencing joy because joy is the emotion of connection. Mm. Happiness is, you know, one thing. We get things that we like and they make us happy or we get excited. But joy is really about connection. And there are so many things that keep us from experiencing that connection to our, our divine self and, and to other people. And that's where I, my, I hope that we're going yeah. <laughs> on the planet as a whole as we move through this. Yeah, so what are, I mean, there are some obvious ones, you know, trauma is one of them, but um, what are some other things that you sort of 
saw in that process is really getting in the way of experiencing and allowing joy to move through us. Beliefs. Hmm. Beliefs that we have about ourselves or about what happened to us that uh, we have no power over it. So, I mean, I believed for a very long time that I was fundamentally flawed because it seemed like like no matter how hard I worked at improving myself and educating myself, there was still, I couldn't have a, I couldn't make a relationship last. Hmm. I never had a, a, a relationship last more than a year at most. And we'd always break up just before Christmas and New Year's. So I'd I'd always be alone (laughs) at Christmas and New Year's. And uh, and as I worked through my beliefs about myself and and what happened and and looked at patterns of martyr uh, energy or victim energy within myself that uh, were were really adaptations. I mean, martyr and victim, those, those kinds of things that we hold about ourselves are adaptations. It's, it's, it's things we do when we're young because that's we don't know anything else. But as you bring consciousness to it, awareness and presence, then it can shift. And then I, I met someone and we've been married 20 through four years now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So martyrdom and victimhood, I think that's the right way to say it, are two things I see a lot um, really do get in the way of joy. And I'd be mm-hmm. curious to hear you explain that a little bit more for someone who might not immediately know what you mean by that. Well, a uh, victim is that something's been done bad to you and it's not your fault and and you have no recourse and somehow there's a, a there's an inherent blaming of other people and you can get, get stuck. So then what you do is you keep manifesting relationships or situations where you repeat the pattern. Of, of feeling like a victim yeah and martyr is that oh I just have to I, I'm gonna work hard and I'm gonna give my all but I'm never gonna get what I want but that's my lot in life <laughs> you know I have to suffer I have to sacrifice yeah it's like I'm always the one doing all the work and... uh, yeah, yeah yeah and just somehow for me and, and you can really get stuck in that place and you don't have to, but you have to be strong. I mean, I had a martyr mother. I was raised to be a martyr. Um, well, I think and women I, have been trained to be it's, martyrs. Well, the, over I was just going to say, and because ultimately, when you can step back, there's a conditioning that happened, and so in the in the end, it's not her fault. You know, we from day one, we didn't get the vote <laughs> until 1921. Yeah, we didn't get the vote. We had no say in the whole formation of this country. Women had no voice, and so now it's so interesting to me that Me Too is showing up just at, at, as so many values are being dismantled yeah. uh, in certain ways. And then we have the young, the young people, these teenagers um, that are speaking up. In it's amazing, really cool. It's really cool. They're so articulate. And so there is a time, I see this as having, well, we had suffragette, we finally got the vote, and then we had women's lib, and now we have the third wave, which we could iconicize as me too but it really is about uh, and it's not just in this country it's throughout the world and why we had matriarchies in the beginning then it then it switched I don't know what the answer to that is all I know is the times I'm living in and so it's really important that it's more than just women it's feminine archetypal energy it's about synergy We've had dominance, and we've had one aspect of viewpoint, and we have men and women for a reason. Yeah. We have different things to contribute, and it's bringing those together that's really going to bring us into, I think, our best selves as, a, as human beings. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, yeah, it's just interesting because I think a lot of women... Um, for a very good reason, like you said, and this is sort of a cultural inheritance, but I'm really interested in seeing what it's going to look like when we all sort of stop and say enough, like I'm going to take responsibility for my life and for myself. And 
relinquish that blame and really just like step into my own power yeah. like that is going to be really cool and I think we are moving toward that right. but there there's some real payoffs that come from being the martyr and being the victim and that's hard to let go of yes <laughs> for as strange as it sounds it's more comfortable to yeah. stay the way you are than to change just as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. And and it's back to my, my, my metaphysical journey is I had to look at payoffs. That was part of what I looked at were what are my payoffs. And I loved blaming my parents. And <laughs> I was really into that. And letting go of that, you there's a discomfort in saying, ooh, what I had been doing up to now, there's a better way to do it. So you have to really own it. And so shame is an issue that comes in. People think, oh, I just it's too shameful and I don't want to look at my shame. Well, there is toxic shame. And that's something that somebody's put on from the outside that makes you believe that there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Yeah. But there's also healthy shame. And that is basically remorse. It says, oh, yes, I've done that. I've behaved that way. I've hurt that person. And I own it. Mm-hmm. I take responsibility for it. And in doing that, it is incredibly empowering because no one is perfect. John, Brett, John Bradshaw in his book, uh, Healing the Shame That Binds You or Binds Me, uh, says that it's the emotion that tells us we're not God. We're uh, not perfect. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, right? So we, the more you can own it and feel in the discomfort of these emotions, they free you up. And then you can make conscious choices instead of reactive or habitual choices. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, people that maybe are more disconnected from their emotions, more disconnected from their body and Mm -hmm. actually feeling. I'm imagining you probably have some clients who come in sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum that are feeling everything that are highly emotional and I imagine that's quite a different process of helping somebody sort of manage yes. that. So what does that look like? That A lot of that is has to do with learning how to come into their body and to really recognize to know what their body is. So, in fact, I, I've had, it's interesting because I used to have a lot of clients who were very, very sensitive. Uh, and they had that emotional, that intense emotional reaction and they cried easily and they didn't want to cry at work. Uh, And so to empower them to recognize that their emotionality is actually a tremendous resource for them because they've been taught that there was something wrong with them for being so emotional. So it's shifting their attitude and mindset towards their own emotionality emotionality and sensitivity and to see it as a, a strength And as they do that, then they have more dominion about how much they're going to allow it and to recognize that they don't, it doesn't have to take over them. They can actually take a breath. And so I have different techniques that I teach where they can step back Hmm. or they can take a moment, take space. Uh, I too study Qigong. I bring in Qigong. I bring in somatic uh, exercises. So there's different, different tools for different people. And then they become, they learn how to be in charge of their own experience. And, and it, it's, it, it's really exciting because they get real excited. Yeah. Uh, and on the other side are the women, a lot who I've worked with more recently as I've been more in the corporate world, of, who are very in their heads. And it is a lot about, they've learned how to maneuver in the system to get around so they can get their job done. And so it's now it's learning how to be able to speak up in the moment before patterns start to form. So they're not working their asses off all the time, <laughs> yeah. doing more work than they need to because other people are not doing their job. That sounds like it could be, you know, I've, I haven't worked in the corporate arena much, so it's sort of outside my wheelhouse, but... I would imagine that being a really embodied, emotionally savvy person and being authentic and all of these things and working in a corporate environment that doesn't necessarily support true expression mm-hmm. would be pretty challenging. Is that something you see a lot? Well, it's less challenging when you're more emotionally savvy. True. It's yeah. before you get there that it's <laughs> challenging. Yeah, that makes sense. And as they get there, 
then there's two, one of two things happens. One is they recognize they can no longer stay in that environment and they move on. They go someplace else, yeah. they get out. Or they start to shift the relate, it always comes down to relationship. The people, whether it's their boss or their colleague uh, or an employee, usually it's, it's managing up that's the, the hardest, so that they start to shift that relationship and it starts with learning how to have conversation where the other person doesn't get defensive and triggered but where you actually get to some truths mm. you get to some facts and some truths and the other person starts to recognize the impact that they're having and they start to create more collaboration and, and more communication i think the the bottom line of what i've witnessed is that um, communication is the biggest money waster in, mm. in any lack of good communication. The way, I mean, the stories I hear in companies is just shocking mm. how much waste and pain is caused because people don't know how to communicate and managers don't know how to manage people. They don't know how to talk to them. Do you think that's getting worse in a way because of all the digital communication? Was not having been in it, I think it actually it has in a way. Because people don't like to pick up the phone anymore. It's it's like everyone text messages. Uh, yeah, it's a little. I'm it's really comfortable on the phone as a coach. Cause mm -hmm. I talk to my clients all the time, but for a long time it was like weird for me to be on the phone. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, and yeah. I had to get used to it. And yeah. I think a lot of people, especially. You know, teenagers or people in their early 20s grew up in a text messaging world or an right. email world. And so when you actually have to look at somebody in the eye and say something, it feels weird for a lot of people. Yes, because you're actually your neurological pathways have developed in a particular way. Yeah, we are. We have relationships with our screens. And yes. And yet trying to communicate anything other than an absolute straight up fact via text Forget about it. It's yeah. just, it's just, you, I, you can't yeah. communicate feelings through text. I can't remember what the exact stats are, but it's basically, you know, conflicts escalate more quickly and take longer to resolve through email and Absolutely. text. Absolutely. And it makes sense because you can't read people's body language, their facial expressions. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I talk to my clients about is, you know, I find out, you know, how are you primarily communicating? And I get them to set meetings and to talk on the phone, and if they can, when they're when they, because there are these remote teams where they're all just talking on the phone, yeah. and they're not seeing each other's faces, to do as much as they can to do Skype or something where they can Vimeo, Vimeo, any one of those where they can do by face. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it's funny because when I was working in web tech. I have multi-year relationships, work relationships mm -hmm. with people I've never seen their face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really strange. bizarre. Yeah. yeah. And I think, uh, I'm hoping that people will start to embrace video technology. I mean, I guess people do, but it just seems like a lot of people don't like to pick up the phone. Right. Right. And it's a, it, I think it's a good thing to do. <laughs> and one of the things that also happens that people managers will set, well, we have these one-to-one -one meetings, and then they keep changing them and canceling them, which is really bad. <laughs> because don't they're confronted it. by it, you think? They're, no, they just get too busy, and so oh. they, they don't, you know, they, oh, well, I, I can't, I have to cancel, I have to reschedule, I have to reschedule. And then this person over here is like, has this thwarted, it's like unrequited love. <laughs> it's like they have something they want to communicate, yeah. and they don't have the opportunity because it gets, you know, keeps getting put off. Yeah. Now, you've sort of touched on this, but I know one topic that you like to talk about is the role of emotions in leadership. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there's a lot you could say about that, but um, what are some of the like highlights of you know, how we can use our emotions to help us be more effective leaders? As a, I think a leader needs to be the person who holds the big picture whatever your domain is, whatever, whoever, whatever you're leading, even if it's leading yourself. I also talk to people about how they lead themselves. Mm. You, you need to have the big picture. You don't need to know everything. 
You don't need to be an expert. And I think some leaders come across like they want to come across like they've got it all together and they know everything or they're, they, they feel like, a, uh, I just finished coaching somebody who had never been a leader before and she thought she had to be a certain way. She had to be bossy mm. and it wasn't her. And so she's learned that, you know, she can be herself. It's about communication. You hold the big picture. You have to know what's going on and, and have conversations with people and about essentially what's their commitment. If, if there's an issue going on with someone or a team, what's, what are they really committed to? Are they being committed to being right? Or if they committed to being working as little as possible <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's bridging. It's really a leader's job is to really know what's going on and recognize that people are different. Some people like direct confrontation and other people don't like it at all. So how you communicate, learn how to communicate with people in different ways and to be respectful and that people have they bring a whole life before them into, when they come into a job. They bring have a whole world outside of their job. And to, to treat them as human beings. And when you get people that are, feel respected, I go back to what Oprah said on her last day of, of her show, that all the people she's interviewed, she's recognized that they, there's one thing that everybody has in common, which is they want to be seen and heard. Yeah. And so when you can have employees, whatever their level, to be seen and to feel like they have some value, not just by a number, but by what they contribute, then they're gonna give more. Not necessarily more hours, but more of their creativity or yeah. their thinking. And to be able to listen, to have, have someone that's open to really listening. The, yeah, that's perfect. Now, um... One thing I would like to do, if you're willing, mm -hmm. you mentioned you have a number of different exercises mm -hmm. that you use with people, and I think sort of have a general sense that a lot of my audience is more on the sensitive side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And you know, I just if somebody's listening to this and you know feels like they have a lot of emotions that can be unwieldy at times, mm -hmm. what are some some things that they can actually do at home that will help okay. them kind of manage Great. that. Great, yeah. The, the, the first and is the, the simplest is to breathe, <laughs> but down into your lower part of your belly. Hmm. There's a, a nerve, the vagus nerve. It, it's the longest one in the body. And, and when you, you move your diaphragm and breathe slowly, particularly on the exhale, so you can inhale maybe to a count of three, and exhale to a count of five. When you exhale slower than you inhale and you move the diaphragm, it activates the vagus nerve, which sends a message to your brain that says you're safe. And it calms things down. So that's the most immediate one. I will share uh, one of my favorite techniques that people seem to really love. I first started teaching it when I, what I taught acting uh, for people in auditions. And it's because you said we cut cut off at the neck, mm -hmm. and particularly uh, women also get cut off or get cut off at the waist. Oh. So we get disconnected from ourselves as gendered beings. So this is called the three balls technique. Huh. And the first thing you do, and, and if anyone's listening now, to just feel the balls of your feet. And that's a little pad right behind your toes in case you don't know and it's between the arch and the toes that little pads of your feet it's called the balls of your feet so you're just putting your attention there become aware of it and if you can't quite feel it just imagine that you are you're really just sending attention there and as you continue to have attention in your balls of your feet or on your balls of your feet bring your attention to for women, your ovaries. For men, your testicles. So you're just becoming aware of them. And continue to breathe. So you have your attention on the balls of your feet. 
and your ovaries or your testicles. And now have your attention also on your eyeballs. Not even your whole eye, just your eyeballs. And then notice what happens. So what are you aware of, Iris? Hmm. Yeah, it's very peaceful. Deeper breathing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Peaceful and deeper breathing. Yeah. So I was going to finish there, but you said something that was really interesting. <laughs> I want to ask more questions about it. Um, you talked about getting cut off at the waist. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think as we're seeing a lot of, some of that could be from sexual harassment, sexual trauma that a lot of women have experienced, yeah. but I'm guessing there's probably more to it than that. So why do you think women get cut off at the waist? Because we have not been valued for the totality of who we are. We've been primarily historically valued for procreating, running the household, uh, you know, doing the chores and the, cooking the food. And so our, our sexual organs, our sexuality, and also in, in martial arts, your dantian is down below the belly button. So that's part of that's really your power center. That has been abused, whether, you, you know, and you might be a happy mother and have loved having children. I'm not saying that there's anything at all wrong with that at all, but there's something archetypally and in the history of women for so long that, that when, especially if we get into professional world or get out in the world, we're protecting that vulnerable area and and since we are a, a very heady country as it is in the west so we go up into the head and we're trying to figure it out we're trying to figure out how we can go how we can get ahead yeah. you know how can we can we move forward how can we be happier how can we get what we want and so our and our desire and our sexuality as women has been compartmentalized if you're sexy well then you know that's for a certain purpose yeah. it's not using your sexuality or your sexual energy which is not about specifically about procreating or having sex it's about your power as a human being and being a whole person yeah man that really resonates a lot i had some insights over the weekend actually about this where you know, we really do have this cosmic portal in our uterus, you know? <laughs> like, that's not something to be taken lightly. That's a tremendous amount of power. Whether yeah. you use it to bring life into the world or not, it's there. Yes. And it's a tremendous source of, of strength that many of us are trained either implicitly or explicitly not to tap into. And I think right. I had this other insight where... You know, we call them private parts, but really they're power parts. Yeah, they're not to be hidden; they're to be respected. I like that. Yeah, and that's just like my new little thing that I'm really into. It's it's a power part, and uh, and I, I do think um, we need to be talking about these things because being cut off anywhere just makes it harder for us to be fully integrated. Yes, exactly. So I really am glad that you brought that up because that's like so my jam right now. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So, um, so if people want to find out more about you. I'll obviously post links to everything. But um, is there anything else you want people to know about before we wrap up? I just want to say to everyone: embrace your emotions. Turn towards them. They are there to bring you information. They don't have to be in charge of your life. You, you get to be in charge. But turn towards your body and your body sensations. You're going to have more fun. Things are going to work better for you. And your emotions are a tremendous source of power. Power is access to resources. And emotions are a resource. We have them for a reason. They've been given to us. And, uh, and they are, uh, can be something that you can utilize. So uh, change your, your languaging and call emotions something positive rather than negative. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps new people find the show and is greatly, greatly appreciated. And if you want to learn more about Joey, head over to irismcalpin.com. I've posted a short bio and link to her website on there as well. And if you want to hear from me between episodes, follow me on Instagram. It's at irismcalpin. And I'll be back in three weeks for real this time with Natalie Ginsberg. She is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I'm super excited about this. We're going to be talking about psychedelic medicine and some of the incredible studies that are being done right now. Psychedelics are not just a hippie thing anymore, and there's an increasing amount of science emerging to back this up. And I've personally benefited from therapeutic psychedelics more than I can really express. So I hope you'll join us to learn more from Natalie. And until then, stay curious.